hope this Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to talk about the biblical concept of hope, what the Bible has to say about hope, how we're to think about that, what that means for us and our whole world, and how we might apply that to our lives, and specifically at Christmas time. There is a context to Isaiah chapter 9, though it's a very famous passage about Jesus and Christmas and all that, and we sing it and we put it on Christmas cards. There's a context that's rather dark and difficult to this passage. So we'll turn back a little bit into chapter 8 to get some of that context. Uh, I'll just tell you, we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 8 with Israel in trouble once again. They've drifted from the Lord. They've turned from the Lord. They've turned to their own ways and they are experiencing the discipline of God. And God is dealing with them according to their sin. And because of that, they are experiencing some difficult dark days and even some despair. And God is trying to lovingly draw them back to himself and prophetically give them hope in the promise of the Messiah who would one day ultimately deliver them from all of their sins. So it's a beautiful, bright passage, but again, it's set in some dark context. So we'll start reading Isaiah 8 verse 11. It says, Isaiah the prophet writing, the Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does, he said. Okay, so he's talking to Israel, God's people. He says in verse 12, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do and don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. But to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many will stumble and fall, never to rise again. They will be snared and captured. Pause right there. That's a word to those who would ultimately reject the Messiah. We know that later on Peter applies that to the Messiah. Picking up in verse 16. Preserve the teaching of God. Entrust his instructions to those who follow me. I will wait for the Lord who has turned away from the descendants of Jacob. Again, God's temporary discipline. I will put my hope in him. Verse 18. I and the children the Lord has given me serve as signs and warnings to Israel from the Lord of heaven's armies who dwells in his temple on Mount Zion. Someone may say to you, Well, let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. With their whisperings and mutterings, they will tell us what to do. But shouldn't people ask God for guidance? Shouldn't the living see see guidance from the dead? Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. They will go from one place to another weary and hungry. And because they are hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth. But wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. And they will be thrown out into the darkness. And then chapter 9. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. 
For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. We thank you this morning, God, for the hope that is in your word. We thank you for what we just read about Jesus, who has come to us, the light of the world, the child who was born to us, the son given to us, the wonderful counselor, mighty God himself, everlasting father, prince of peace. May we together this morning know the peace of Christ. May we lay hold of the hope that we have in him. May you do for us as you have done for Israel, do for our community as you did for Israel. Would you deliver us from despair and from dark days? And would our community and our hearts be filled with glory? May we who walk in darkness see a great light in Christ even today. Please, Holy Spirit, instruct us in the word for our good and for the glory of Jesus. Help us be faithful as God's people at this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, it's been a little bit hard to get in the Christmas mood around here this Christmas season, obviously with everything that's going on. But generally, Christmas is about a lot of different things for our culture. And the loudest voices try to make it about their thing, whatever that might be. But originally, in its initial context, Christmas was about one thing. Christmas was about hope. Christmas was about hope, not in the sense that we say, you know, I hope I get thus and so for Christmas, though I do have certain hopes, mom and dad. There's certain things, (laughs) I'm 45, I still say that to my mom and dad. There's certain things that I'm still hoping for, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about Christmas hope. The popular use of the word hope is very different from the biblical use of the word hope. The popular phrase has to do with uncertainty. We say, I hope, because I don't know something. I hope this happens, and we say that because I I don't know what might happen. I hope the wind shifts, or I hope that that's not lost, or I hope that we can save that. And so it's this expression of uncertainty. It's this expression in our culture about unknowns and vague optimism. But that's not the way the word hope is used in the Bible. The biblical use of the word hope means an expression of expectation of something good based on what has been told to us by God. An expression of expectation of something good based on what has been told to us by God. So it's not vague optimism, it is bold hope. It isn't based on uncertainty. I don't know what will happen, so I hope this. It is based on certainty. God has said thus and so, so I have great hope about this. The psalmist uses it correctly in Psalm 130. When he says, I wait for the Lord, my whole being 
waits. And in his word, I put my hope. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. Now there's the biblical use, the biblical idea of the word hope. And I want you to notice where hope is placed. It's not an uncertainty. It's not in any weather pattern. It's not in something we don't know. Hope, biblically speaking, is placed in God's word and in God himself. The psalmist says, in God's word, I hope. I have hope based on what God has said. And then he says, Israel, hope in God himself. So the call, the invitation for God's people, for the Christian is to hope in what God has said in his word and to hope in God himself. Now, of course, this requires faith because it's about things that are promised. It has to do with future. We don't hope for something that is present. Hope is always a future thing. So it requires faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 gives us a definition of faith as it pertains to hope. And it says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. So God has said something. I may not see it. I believe God's promises because of God's character. Therefore, by faith, I have great hope. You understand what's going on here? And hope, biblically speaking, is the opposite of despair. It's the opposite of this feeling that much of our community is experiencing right now. Despair about the situation, despair about loss, despair about what is unknown. Despair is a common human emotion. In all of our lives from time to time, we will experience despair or be confronted by things that cause us or tempt us to despair. And hope is the biblical option that is given to us in the faith in the face, excuse me, of despair. The Bible offers us hope to save us from despair. Hebrews chapter 6 says about hope. God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to, hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. You know about despair. Despair makes you feel adrift. Unknowns and uncertainties make you feel lost and subject to other forces. But hope in God and what he has said is like an anchor to our souls. It holds us fast when everything around us seems to be crumbling and threatened. Hope in Jesus holds us fast. And that has an emotive, an emotional, a psychological, a a spiritual and physical effect on us. We're anchored to something bigger, something more steady, something eternal, Christ himself. Psalm 146 verse 5 says, Joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Now what an opportunity for us as believers at this time where our community is experiencing so much despair to look at what the Bible says about Jesus and about hope and with the help of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word to rise above that and say, yes, but there is joy in Christ even in difficult days. Why? Because those who have put their hope in the Lord have joy. Joy 
joy is bigger than happiness. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. But joy is something that transcends circumstances, happiness, sadness. It's bigger than despair. It's what we are offered in Christ and his love for us. Hope equals joy. And that can be hard to lay hold of. It's one thing to speak of it ethereally. It can be hard to lay hold of on ground level when we're seeing what we're seeing and experiencing what we're experiencing. So as we prayed for the community earlier, the New Testament uh, prays for us. Paul prayed this for the church. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God knows that we need help with hope sometimes. So he says, I am the God of hope. And we pray for each other. Fill us with joy and peace so that we can abound in hope. That's my hope for us this morning as God's people, that we would abound in hope. It wouldn't be languishing. It wouldn't be diminished. It would be this this God thing in our lives that profoundly affects the way that we feel about and experience and serve others in the midst of difficult times. And notice that the Holy Spirit is available to help us with this so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christian hope is not something that we have to muster in and of ourselves. It's not just a sermon that you heard from me. It is something that God's Spirit is wanting to work in us. In all circumstances, in difficult times. So, you know, there's certain prayers that you know are always going to be answered. In the Bible, there's a few of them. This is one of them. God, help me in this deep, dark time. In this despair, help me to have hope in Jesus by your spirit. And God will begin to do that work. This is important for us to have that prayer in our arsenal, so to speak, because life so often happens in ways that, again, cause us to despair. And it's not just the fire. You know, there's been a lot of difficulties in our community and and particularly in our church this year. There's been deaths, there's been strokes, there's been loss, there's been financial ruin, there's been betrayal, there's been so many deep, hard things that have happened amongst God's people this year. God offers us hope to help us. And it's meant to, as I said, literally affect us, affect us, affect us. It's meant to affect us emotively. It's meant to affect us even in the way that we feel. This is in the context of death and losing loved ones, Christians in particular, but look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. He's talking about eternal life in Christ, so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. See what the Bible says there? There's a certain kind of grieving that is apart from hope, but there's a different kind of grieving that has hope. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve. We certainly grieve death. We can grieve fire. We can grieve loss. We can grieve the other losses that have happened in our churches. It doesn't mean we don't grieve, but it does mean that we are invited to grieve differently than those who have no hope. And one of the defining characteristics of God's people is that we have hope because of what God has said and who Christ is. And Christian hope is meant to literally help us make it through today. Now, as I said, Christmas was originally about hope. And the hope is given to us in those couple verses about Jesus. Again, looking at the Isaiah text that we read. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. Someone say, Amen. 
And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He, he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. God will make this happen. God in his zeal and his passion for his people and his glory and his kingdom will make this promise of hope happen. And as I said, this promise was given to Israel when they were in dark days, difficult times, where they were experiencing despair, as we often have. And for them, it was a, it was a far-off promise. This was given 700 years before Jesus came. So there was a long time there where they were having to hold on to hope. But that's part of what hope is. It's this future thing. And it, the hope was meant to come to them in the promise of the arrival of the child, the appearing of the Messiah who was born in Bethlehem. And another word for appearing or arrival is advent. That's why we often call this the advent season. It celebrates and it looks forward to the arrival of the Messiah. Now, I want us to drill down a little deeper on why this promise was so meaningful for Israel and so important to them, and hence us. And for that, we need to kind of look at the reason that they were experiencing dark days, difficulties, and despair. Now, hear me carefully about this. The despair and the darkness that they were experiencing had predominantly to do with their own sin. There were circumstances, certainly, But their circumstances have been affected by their rebellion. And the darkness that they were experiencing and the things that they were feeling had to do with their own sin and the ruin it caused in their lives, in their culture, in their world, and importantly, their inability to fix it themselves. The darkness was bigger than they were. The despair was more than they could repair in and of their own power. Let's look back at what God says about the rebellion and sin in Isaiah chapter 1. Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognizes its master's care, but Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They're evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why do you continue to invite punishment? Must you rebel forever? Your head is injured and your heart is sick. You're battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds without any soothing ointments or bandages. Your country lies in ruins and your towns are burned. Foreigners plunder your fields before your eyes and destroy everything they see. Beautiful Jerusalem stands abandoned like a watchman's shelter in a vineyard, like a lean-to in a cucumber field after the harvest, like a helpless city under siege. And let me be sensitive here. That's potent language for us right now in the situation in our community. And I am not trying to draw one-for-one inferences. So don't misunderstand me here. But when Israel was given the promise of the coming Messiah, the child that would bring them hope and peace, 
It was in dark days that were brought about by their own sin. And it would have been easy for them to look at circumstantial things like their vineyards, you know, uh, not doing well and fires and foreign invaders and all these things and to not recognize their own culpability in that, to not see their own sin in that. Now, again, I'm not drawing a one-for-one inference. I'm not saying that Ventura, Carpinteria, Montecito, Summerlin, Ojai, Santa Barbara are on fire because of our sin necessarily. But there is enough biblical precedence here for us as a culture to look at our situation and to look at our sin and say, what should we do in front of you, God, in the face of fire, in the face of loss, in the face of non-flourishing? Because we do know ultimately as God's people trained in the word of God that all destruction is a result of human sin. God did not design the world for destruction. He made us for flourishing. He made the world for beauty and for our well-being and to glorify him. It is our sin that has brought destruction and suffering into the world. So though it's tenuous to ever make one-for-one comparisons on a large scale like this, it is wise to at least say, well, we do know on a grand scale that human sin has brought about human suffering. So wherever there is suffering, there ought to be the hope of repentance. You, You understand what I'm getting at here? That was Israel's situation. And they didn't do what I'm asking our community to do right now. They didn't turn to God in all of their suffering. They did do what the church is often in danger of doing. They just kind of went through religious emotions. Look what it says later on in Isaiah chapter 1. God says, what makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord. I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They're a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Obviously, for God to speak to Israel in this way, Israel was in big trouble. And they're in a bad place. And God is not saying this to Israel because he hated them. God is saying this to Israel because he loved them. And he was trying to rattle them from the place of their trouble, which was not only their own sin, but their lack of attention to God. And their tendency just kind of go through some sort of religious motions. And God is saying, you're children to me. And I love you more than that. And he's trying to, with real words, and he would with real discipline and with tremendous difficulty, rattle them from complacency, rattle them from sinfulness and bring them into the place of flourishing through repentance. So he tells them in the next two verses that he wanted them to live differently. He wanted them to change course. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. And when we get to the book of Acts, we're going to see that the church in the book of Acts was doing these very things. 
And we often think, wow, that's something new. Wow, the church was born in the book of Acts and after Pentecost. They were doing all these awesome things. They were caring for one another, caring for people and giving away all their stuff. But that wasn't a new thing. That was an old thing. God's people were always meant to live that way. It's simply that they had failed to do so. God was calling them to live differently in a world where they were experiencing the results of their sins. And the story goes in the book of Isaiah that they refused to do so. So God would give them promises, as we read in chapter 9, but he would also discipline them. And just as a reminder to us that we could share with broader culture, like during the time that they were experiencing difficulty, they were turning to silly places. We already read this first, but the last few passage verses of chapter 8, Someone may say to you, let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead with their whisperings and mutterings, they'll tell us what to do. But shouldn't people ask God for guidance? Should the living seek guidance from the dead? Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. Man, hard words. But a beautiful invitation, reminder of whom we can seek in these difficult times. So God says these really mean, hard things to Israel. And then, in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, he brings them hope. He brings them the promise of the Messiah. So what we just read rolled right into chapter 9, where we read these verses again. God says, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. God says to them, I know these are deep, dark days. You've actually brought it upon yourself. But in my grace, there is coming a better day. God would do for them what they could not do for themselves. God would deliver them from their sin. God in Christ would bring the Savior, the Deliverer. Though they would continue to choose darkness, the light of the world would come and shine in the dark places. God says to you today what he said to Israel then, there won't always be this this darkness. There is better days coming. Listen, in Jesus, there are always better days. No matter what happens in our world, no matter what happens in our lives, in Christ, there is always a better day coming. And this promise that, that God gave to Israel was meant to carry them. It was meant to sustain them. It was meant to reform them. It was meant to direct the way that they lived, that they were to live lightward, toward the light who would be Christ, toward the promise of what God was telling them. And then 700 years later, it would come true. We read about the first advent in Luke. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them. And the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign, a reference to Isaiah 9 and 7. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. 
The hard thing about hope is that it's future. And we don't like waiting. Who here likes to wait? Raise your hands and someone next to you will slap you. (laughs) Nobody, nobody likes to wait. Hope has to do with promises that God has given us in the future. And so God's people throughout history have found themselves in postures of waiting. And waiting is hard. 700 years is a long time. You know what, though? The church has this real beat. We've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. Now, these weeks before Christmas uh, within the church, we generally call them Advent. Remembering that Advent means appearing or arrival. And the reason that the church recognizes Advent is because the original Christmas was about hope. It was about the fact that Israel had been waiting in despair. That's why we sing that, sing, oh, sing that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Right? It's about the darkness that they were in and the hope of the light that was coming. And so what we're supposed to do at Christmas as Christians is sort of enter into Israel's waiting, feel that that, 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 that tension of waiting for the promise, but experiencing difficulty in these days. We identify with that. But within Christianity, there are two great arrivals or advents or appearing, right? The Christian creed is that Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose, Christ is coming again. There are two great advents, two great appearances. Christ has come and Christ is coming again. So we don't only at Christmas time look back to the birth. We look forward to the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christmas is not just looking back. Christmas is looking forward. And it's not that hard for us to enter, in, enter into that sense of longing because don't we, even though I'm, when I say we now, I'm talking about Christians, don't we, even though we have been forgiven of our sins because Christ came, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, we've put our faith in him, we've been forgiven of our sins, don't we in this life still experience the reverberating effects of sin in the world? And even our own sin. Like I wish it was true that when you became a Christian, you never sinned again, but that's not the way it works. And glory, that'll be the issue. But for now, we, we experience still the reverberating effects either on a micro level, like in my own heart, the negative reverberating effects of my sinful choices are like in my family or in my church or my community or in our world. It, we don't only point the finger when we read these words about Israel and their condition again in Isaiah 1 when it said, Why do you continue to invite punishment? Must you rebel forever? Your head is injured and your heart is sick. You're battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds without any soothing ointments or bandages. What a potent picture of the effect of sin in our lives. And don't forget, brothers and sisters, I'm preaching to myself that sin is always blinding. We're the last ones to see the bandage on us and the oozing scars so often from our own sinful choices. Again, God doesn't call us away from sin because he doesn't want us to have fun. God calls us away from sin because he wants us to be well. For our good and for his glory, God calls us away from sin because this is what sin does. The grinding, blinding, destructive nature of sin. 
God in his love calls us away from that. And so we find ourselves identifying with Israel and their condition of suffering from the results of sin. Now let me try to bring a little bit of hope because it's been a very cheery Christmas sermon, hasn't it? (laughs) Why, if God made these promises of hope to Israel and they were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the child was given to us, a son, came to us. Why if Jesus came and he died on the cross to defeat the devil and sin and death and he rose from the dead victorious that we might have new life and he ascended unto heaven and he's ruling and reigning. Why then in this lifetime do we still experience despair and darkness and so many of these difficult things? Let me try to just explain that for a moment theologically so we could all identify where we sit historically and find some hope prophetically. What a wordy sentence. Our salvation that God has brought to us in Jesus unfolds throughout history in three tenses. Okay? Past, present, and future. Here's the past tense of our salvation. We have been fully saved from the penalty of sin. That is the state of the Christian. If you have... uh, Put your faith in Jesus Christ, repented of your sin, placed your hope in him according to what he did on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, then you have been fully saved from the penalty of sin. That's not a partial salvation. That's a full saving. You are forgiven once and for all. You say, but I sinned again. I know, but you are forgiven once for all. Jesus said, tetelestai. It is finished. Paid in full upon the cross. Okay? So someone say, hooray. We have been fully saved from the penalty of sin by Jesus, a child who was given to us. That's the past tense of our salvation. The present tense of our salvation is this. We are being daily saved from the power of sin. There's still the power of sin working in our lives and working in our flesh. And we are daily saved from that by the work of God in us, Christ in us, his spirit in us, the truth of the word of God dwelling richly in our minds, Colossians chapter 3. We are daily being saved from the power of sin. Even the redeeming things where God redeems areas of our lives that were perverted or broken or disfigured by sin. Now, maybe this is one we need to lay hold of a little more practically, right? It's it's pretty awesome for us to say, yeah, I have been forgiven of all my sins and then go on and continue to sin. But remember what Romans 6 says, sin no longer has power over you. So stop presenting the parts of your body as instruments for sin. Instead, present your whole self as an instrument to God for righteousness, Romans 6 says. And there's power in the Holy Spirit and the truth of God and Christ in us to do that. So God is present in our lives, working to daily save us from the power of sin. Christ in us is more powerful than sin and its temptations and its wiles. Amen? And here's the future tense of our salvation. We will be ultimately saved from the presence of sin. Now a big hooray. Big hooray. We will be ultimately saved from the presence of sin. We live in this conundrum. We live in this paradox. We live in this weird time between Christ's cross and resurrection and his second coming to bring the fullness of his kingdom and renew the whole earth. We are those lucky people that live in the great in-between. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. 
The kingdom of God has come and it is coming. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated and it will be consummated. It is present, working in our midst, and it will ultimately be brought to us and renew all things. And this is where hope is found. As I said earlier, in Jesus, there is always better days ahead. There is coming a day where Christ, where Christ will return physically and bodily, where he will judge all evil. He will reverse the effects of all evil and sin in the world. He will renew all things in glory under his rule. And we will then ultimately forever be saved from the presence of sin and all of its reverberating effects. And this is meant to be biblical hope for us. This is not escapism. This is what the Bible says. This isn't a way that we then dismiss our behavior. This is a way that we hope in a better day. That is Christianity. Christianity is a thing of hope. Salvation and forgiveness has been brought to us. It is presently working in us. And it will be brought to us in a better day when Christ returns and renews all things. The second advent. And even if we look at that text, that promise that was given to us in Isaiah, it is both already and not yet. Look at some of the already. Uh, Two and four. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. For you will break the yoke of of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod. So light has already been brought to us in Jesus and freedom has been brought to us in Jesus. Right? We are free in Christ and we have light. Verse 6 of that passage, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is that for you now. Peace has been brought to us. He is present with us. This is not a future thing. This is a now thing. Right, The light has come. Freedom has been brought to us. Past tense, verses 2 and 3. Present tense, he is for us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And then there is in that passage the future tense. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Because of that passage and others like it, is why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that's what we're praying for. His kingdom is already here, but it's coming in fullness when he will rule the earth in equity. And this is what we're praying for. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what we're hoping for. That is a prayer that is always answered. God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done because Jesus is coming again. And so our posture that I just spoke of, that in-between place, is described well in Romans chapter 8. Look, this is our, 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 our posture and the posture of, of all of creation while we wait for the Lord to return. It says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Okay, that's a good one, right? Sometimes, well, never, I won't preach it. I'll just read again. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. All of creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. 
For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. So it's normative, it's not strange within Christianity to feel this tension of living in the in-between. And Christmas is actually meant to bring that to mind, that we live in the in-between. The hope has been brought to us and a greater hope is coming for us. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Isaiah 25. It means a lot right now. This is a promise about the coming of Christ again. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. That for me this year is like the Christmas passage. Should have had that printed on your Christmas cards. (laughs) Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings, has brought to us, daily gives to us, and is bringing again. And let's live that way. Let's live in the light of hope, in the light of Christ and who he is and what he's done. And let's celebrate that as people who've been saved and have a greater hope. Amen? Lord, I pray that these words today would be helpful to us. Pray for us, Lord, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know what is the hope of your calling. What are the riches of the glory of your inheritance for us? And that we would know the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe. Help us, Holy Spirit, to know the hope that we have in Christ and to live accordingly, to view our possessions accordingly, our losses, our gains, And as those who have great hope, we pray for those today who are without hope. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it's your job to exalt Jesus in the world. We're partnered with you on that. So even as Christ is the light of the world, may we be lights in this community this week in the dark places where we shine the glory and the light of Christ? Would we bring hope where there is no hope? Would we, by grace, live joyously in Christ, even in the face of despair? And we ask for a little reprieve, Lord, for our community. Would you remove the cloud of gloom and darkness that hangs over us. Would you deliver us and save us, God? God, would you bring rain upon our land?
Would you save every life and every home? And would you make yourself known here in the coastlands this Christmas time? For we need you, God. And you are worthy of all glory.